Gladiator for Europe. I am Liam, joined here by Sam B. How you doing? Hello. I return. By now, a lot of you guys have probably heard of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the colorful Russian oligarch, caterer, and mercenary leader who was rocketed to the world stage just a couple days ago for his role in what appeared to be an attempted coup against Vladimir Putin. So obviously the coup failed. Prigozhin got some kind of deal, and as we're recording this, he's been exiled to Belarus while posting vague online hints that he's cooking something new. Yeah, yeah. We have no idea what's going to happen, and I think the rule for this episode should be we won't make any predictions, because the Ukraine-Russia situation is very volatile, and I think that a lot of podcasts get a little bit too overconfident, and we're not going to be one of them. Yeah, let's just not make that mistake. Let's just not even go there. No Instead, need. we're going to go over who Prigozhin is, where he came from, and how he got to this point. Yeah. The craziest thing about the Russia coup is that it was all caused by this one guy. This one really weird hot dog seller yes. turned mercenary kingmaker. Yeah, he's he's a clown. He's this buffoonish grandstander who is nevertheless probably the most brutally effective commander in Russia's entire war effort against Ukraine. Or at least that's the image he likes to portray. That's true. Absolutely. Because, and the image is very important here, because unlike other oligarchs who prefer to stick to the shadows, Prigozhin is a glory hound through and through. He wants to throw himself into the center of the world's eye, and he's finally there. Uh, and we have to wonder if, um, you know, his attempts to seek publicity are not disconnected from his apparent attempt to overthrow the Russian government. You know, maybe it all was just to get the cameras on him. Because he is a very unusual figure. In some ways, he feels like he's stepped out of another time, you know, an age of condottieri, like the Italian Renaissance. Absolutely. But on the other hand, he's the kind of figure who can only exist in 2023. And so I feel like if, you know, Hegel famously called Napoleon history on horseback, I think this episode will explain why Prigozhin is, in fact, the end of history on horseback. So let's get into his life and background a bit. So Yevgeny Prigozhin was born in 1961 in St. Petersburg, Leningrad at the time. He was a solidly middle-class kid whose mother, Violetta, was a doctor. Uh, but his dad died when he was young, and for a while his mom supported the family on a single income. This was not a huge income because Soviet doctors were nowhere near as well-paid as their American counterparts. Right. But he still was solidly middle class. The biggest event in Prigozhin's early life was that his mother remarried a man named Samuel Zhirkoy, a professional cross-country professional cross skier, which is a profession I did not know existed in the Soviet <laughs> Union. <laughs> Well, it's because uh, it was all about the Olympics. Yeah. The Olympics were a really big part of Soviet statecraft and diplomacy, especially the Winter Olympics, you know. Oh, absolutely. And so that's why, uh, as a teenager, Prigozhin really wanted to follow in his stepdad's footsteps and also become, if not an Olympian himself, a trainer for the Olympic athletes, like his stepdad was. And he actually uh, got somewhat far in this because he was admitted to a special boarding school for Soviet athletes that was known for pumping out tons of Olympians. Exactly. So at school, he met a lot of kids who were a lot more high up in the Soviet elite than his family was. But what really stung was that a lot of these kids weren't just richer or well-connected. They were better athletes, which is a really hard thing to take, truth to take in if this is your dream. Exactly. So unlike these kids who were already better off than him, who already had like, you know, parents in the uh, nomenclatura or whatever, he had nothing waiting for him after high school. No lucrative uh, athletic career, no, you know, contracts, and nothing like that. And this uh, was presumably pretty heartbreaking to him, because he'd spent so long trying to become an athlete. 
But ironically, his failure to live out these Olympic dreams would ultimately bring him to much, much greater fame and glory. Uh, but it, start, it all starts, I would say, with how uh, as soon as he gets out of high school, he starts hanging out with a pretty bad crowd with uh, very bad implications in the short term. Yeah, and this is a bad crowd in St. Petersburg in the late Soviet Union, which is saying, it's serious. Right. Things are falling apart. Nobody has money. People are trying to make ends meet in other ways. And for Prigozhin, it was breaking into luxury apartments and robbing them. He was just 18 when he did this. Uh, you know, just to psychoanalyze a bit, I gotta wonder if maybe this was his way at getting back uh, at the, uh, the rich kids at his school, the well-connected kids in the fancier apartments. He's arrested at 18, but given a second chance by the Soviet legal system, a suspended sentence. He doesn't take that second chance because just two years later, he's arrested again. This time for a much more serious crime because he's now alleged to be the ringleader of a gang of thieves that includes minors. Yeah, gang activity is a big no-no. Yeah, and so for that reason, he was slammed with 12 years in prison, probably thinking his whole life was over. Yeah. But he ended up benefiting from something that didn't benefit a lot of people, and I wouldn't say benefited the public at large in terms of, you know, quality of life. That being the fall of the Soviet Union. Because when that happened, a lot of people were... Uh, released from the overcrowded Soviet prisons, including Prigozhin. And they started a new attempt to make money through other means. In a, in, in a country where this was na- that was now accepted and legal. I- exactly, yes, yes. And that suddenly transitioning from a, you know, a uh, planned economy to this free market, you know, kind of almost libertarian capitalist state. And uh, tell me, Sam, how did Prigozhin make his money initially? Well, he started out with a hot dog stand. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, as humble as you can start. With his mom and stepdad. Yeah. Who, by the way, was, like his father, Jewish. Yes, and that's going to be important, as we'll get into. You wouldn't expect that with his later activities. And and his later associations, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union was really bad for a lot of people, but really good for small-time businessmen with a lot of gumption. And he's a good example of that. He would really quickly rise through the new Soviet economy, uh, largely just through his involvement in the food industry. He grew from having a hot dog stand to being able to invest in grocery stores and restaurants with some of the connections he made at that elite boarding school. And this meant that by his mid-30s, he was owning some restaurants in his own right and had actually become one of the richest businessmen in St. Petersburg. This is in the 90s when he's like 33 or something. I think where he really made it big, though, after this point was when he moved from grocery stores and restaurants into casinos. He was kind of like the Ace Rothstein of St. Petersburg, setting up gambling enterprises all over the city, bringing in blackjack machines, um, and especially greasing the palms of the supervisory board of gambling, uh, a part of of the Russian government, which was chaired by a young city official of St. Petersburg. Can you guess who this was, Sam? Well, you might have heard of him. His name is Vladimir Putin. That's right. Uh, the two guys, Putin and Prigozhin, would see their own fortunes each greatly improve across the 90s. And it seems like they became friends along the way. Because by the time Putin was named as deputy chairman of the St. Petersburg government, Prigozhin was operating high-class restaurants across the city, including one called New Island, which was a... Uh, the boat one? Yes, a boat turned into a restaurant that hosted guests as eminent as uh, Jacques Chirac, president of France, and even George W. Bush when they made state visits to Russia. 
Because remember, you know, these days, Russia and the West have a very oppositional relationship. But in the 2000s, and especially the 90s, this wasn't the case. George Bush was very friendly with Putin. And I think that Prigozhin, if you asked him, would probably say he's part of the reason why. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, Bush was, Putin was probably one of the few European leaders who Bush didn't hold a, a grudge against for being uh, not joining the Iraq War. Yeah. He, yeah, he famously said he looked into Putin's soul. And yeah. Stuff, <laughs> which is... Uh, yeah. Ah, oh, there's a lot there. But in the 2000s, he expanded into industrial-scale catering, which would gain huge government contracts to deliver food to schools, state offices, and most importantly of all, the Russian military. Right. By 2012, he was living in his own mansion with a helipad. And isn't it crazy? It's almost too hard to believe, right? All this from a little hot dog stand? Yeah, it, it is a little too, too crazy to believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, you gotta wonder if that's really the full story. Because while a lot of kind of classic mom-and-pop joints did turn very much everyday people into oligarchs in this era, this was a time in which rising through the economy was basically impossible without... Collaboration with very shady characters. And Russia in the 90s had no shortage of shady characters. Probably the two most notorious groups like that to emerge out of this place and time were groups which both had some circumstantial role in Prigozhin's success. Nothing is known for sure, but it might make his rapid success easier to understand. These two groups are mobsters, and neo-Nazis. Okay, so a lot has been written about the Russian mob. Their international reach means they're pretty widely known in pop culture to the extent that they've been the go-to action movie for Hollywood villains in the past 10 or 20 years, second only to Middle Eastern terrorists. Yeah. These gangs existed in the Soviet prison system all across the Soviet uh, era, but during the 80s, the, inc the, the increased openness of Soviet society allowed prison gangs to operate semi-publicly for the first time opening legitimate businesses and fronts and even going abroad to establish criminal syndicates in countries like the United States or in uh, European countries. So as a result of this, as early as 1985, major Russian gangsters were being assassinated in Brooklyn. And so by the 90s, Russian mobsters had become some of the most significant international criminals, making deals with a lot of different gangsters. Uh, you know, the casinos that we mentioned Prigozhin working at, they probably got their slot machines with the assistance of the Japanese Yakuza. Absolutely. Yeah. Russian gangsters were also making deals with cartels in Colombia and Mexico to bring drugs between Europe and Latin America. Within Russia, entire sectors of the new economy were coming under domination of the mob. They even entered politics, uh, but didn't have as much success. Uh, the best example of this I know is that a 30-year-old gangster named Vladimir Nikolaev, whose nickname was Winnie the Pooh, awesome. became the unexpected mayor of Vladivostok, a really major city after his favorite opponent apparently tripped on a live grenade and was killed. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, come <laughs> on. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so by the early 2000s, a little bit after this, the interior minister, Rashid Zinuglaev, claimed that 10% of the geography of Russia was either under the control of gangsters or Chechen rebels. and Who were also effectively gangsters yeah, by yeah, that time. Yeah, I'm sure. And the new government, now led by Vladimir Putin himself, would very effectively and brutally deal with both of these threats due to a uh, combination of violence and backroom shady dealmaking that ended up turning yeah, both of these... which is a huge topic and probably too much for this podcast. Right, right, yeah. It has to be mentioned. But I think what matters here is that uh, I think a lot of people in the West don't understand why a figure as 
uh, violent and boorish as Vladimir Putin has any support among the Russian public. And I think that the biggest reason he does is that the 90s in Russia were a really bad time. Life expectancy dropped precipitously. There was a huge amount of violence. The economy was in shambles. Then Vladimir Putin comes in, and for various reasons, he's able to uh, bring back an order of stability, which gave him enough goodwill to basically stay in power for the ensuing 20 years. He essentially re-centralizes the state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, even under Yeltsin, famously, there were competing security agencies. The KGB, or the FSB, I'm yeah. sorry, wasn't the only game in town. And Putin centralized all that. Yes, centralized it, especially under his direct control. Uh, he basically reoriented the Russian state around him. Russia still has elections, but it really seems like for the past several, basically 15 years-ish, these elections have been, at best, semi-legitimate, you know? At worst, yeah. total farce. I'd compare them to Turkish elections. Yeah, yeah. Turkish elections now are kind of what Russian elections have been like for the last, like, 15 years. Uh, and again, it's because uh, you could say that the, that so the, the 2000s were this kind of autocratic stability brought in by Vladimir Putin. The 90s were utter pandemonium. And I think that one of the most shocking aspects of this pandemonium for everyday Russian people were the sudden appearance of those neo-Nazi thugs we mentioned. Yeah, because... Obviously, neo-Nazis are despised by the vast majority of people in America or England or Germany, but Russia is a little different. In Russia, the sight of a swastika stings a little deeper than it does here, because so many Russians and other Soviet citizens, I should note, were slaughtered by the Nazis in World War II. It's a, it's really shocking to see that. It's the, it's like, yeah. There's really no parallel here. There's no war where Americans have lost nearly as many people as the Soviets lost. And uh, just like the mob, the neo-Nazi movement began before the fall of the Soviet Union as an extreme reaction to whatever the Soviet Union represented, right? Like, if you hate the USSR and you're an edgy, an edgy piece of shit, you're going to embrace the most anti-Soviet symbol you can think of, which is, in this context, Nazism. Uh, so small Nazi skinhead gangs start popping up across Russian cities amid the fall of the USSR, probably inspired by... Uh, you know, Nazi punks in the United States and Europe. Our very first episode of this show was actually about the National Bolsheviks. Yes. A famous similar group of punks who also adopted Nazi imagery alongside Soviet imagery to shock people. There is a significant distinction here because the National Bolsheviks, they were not good people in any sense. No. But they were... Good music though sometimes. But they were using these symbols as purely an aesthetic point. They expressly did not adhere to any of the genocidal tendencies of National Socialism. Other Nazi punks, explicit neo-Nazis, very much did. Yeah. There was a rash of hate crimes across Russia, murders of rival groups. It was not uncommon to see small groups of neo-Nazis gathering in the streets. These were not large movements like uh, this was not a huge yeah. percentage of, of the population in any sense uh, we're talking a few hundred maybe a few thousand in every city these were fringe groups but they were very visible one interesting thing also about them is that they even started their own religion there is a uh, a neo-pagan slavic movement created by russian neo-nazis inspired by far-right neo-pagans in scandinavia they reject followed by someone who we will talk about later on. Yes, yes, yeah. Based on the idea that you know Christianity is too Jewish or whatever, and because these guys are so anti-Semitic, uh, they uh, they reject even Christianity, which has been like you know so essential to other kinds of right-wing Russian thought. Absolutely, yeah. These people basically believe that the only thing Hitler got wrong was uh, that Russians are inferior to Germans. Yes, exactly, exactly. They're on board with everything else, particularly the anti-Semitism. 
And we should mention here that just like with the mobsters and with the Chechen rebels, the relationship between neo-Nazis and the Russian government has been somewhat complicated because it's long been alleged that some of these Nazis were in fact on the government payroll, not because Putin, uh, not because Putin had any real like ideological sympathy with Nazis. He doesn't. But yeah. because the no, but because the sight of these Nazis was such a, a good fear tactic in Russia that it could be used as an excuse to get more funding for the growing security state, which of course meant more power for Vladimir Putin. Yeah, there's some strong analogs to uh, American history yeah. for this one. Oh yeah, 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 no, exactly. Like uh, it's covert government support for fascists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and here's the thing. So bringing this all back home, I don't think Prigozhin is in the mob and I certainly don't think he's a Nazi but he seems to have spent a lot of time with both of those kinds of people. There is one particular association we have to talk about here, which is incredibly important to his career. It's an association that's generated a lot of speculation with a figure who is much more shadowy than the, you know, very public grandstanding Prigozhin. That is his bodyguard and presumed former neo-Nazi thug, Dmitry Utkin. Who is this guy? Well, uh, he's got SS tattoos and was active in the Russian military. Yes, he does. Yeah, so active in the Russian military where his call sign was Wagner, as in Hitler's favorite composer. Um, so there's there's not really much dis- uh, dispute about his political orientation. Yeah. About him being a Nazi. Right, and this is especially kind of surprising or uh, uh, incongruous because, as we mentioned, Prigozhin is Part Jewish. Yeah, his he. I mean, he is Jewish. His father is Jewish, and uh, there are arguments about that. But I, I think he's definitely Jewish, and that was definitely part of his upbringing and his experiences. Even his stepdad was Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think his mother was not. But one kind of funny thing about his mother's family is that her last name is uh, Holhova, which, if that sounds familiar, it it means Ukrainian, and it's actually related to a word that's a pretty nasty Russian slur for Ukrainians. So it's kind of funny, right? So he's a guy who's you know. He's of Jewish and Ukrainian descent, but he's palling around with Nazis and he's invading Ukraine, right? I feel like it's a, he really is a man who contains multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for whatever reason, Prigozhin began his association with this guy, despite the fact that Utkin presumably adheres, or at least once adhered to an ideology that would see Prigozhin's family wiped out. Uh, initially, Utkin served as his bodyguard and security manager for his various businesses and factories. But on the side, Utkin had another hustle, one relating to his former military service. It's that uh, Utkin was a mercenary. He had a company based in Hong Kong known as the Slavonic Corps, which is another kind of funny little nod to, right, another nod to his kind of, you know, Slavic nationalism and neo-paganism, that fought in 2013 in the Syrian Civil War. Uh, Russia would later officially join the the civil war on behalf of uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad. But this early, this was unusual. This was a small group of mercenaries that included Utkin. Uh, and this would have very big implications for the career of his partner, Prigozhin, who at this point, we have to mention, maintained that his only business was food service. Yeah. So there was an investigation uh, by Forbes Russia about this, and they found that although Putin had publicly toured uh, Prigozhin's facilities in 2010, by 2013, a lot of their factories had been shuttered, even though government contracts kept coming in. So it's pretty clear that he was making money by other means. Right. And uh, shortly before this happened, Utkin, head of that group, Slavonic Corps, comes back, to, uh, comes back from Syria to St. Petersburg. And not long after this, 
he forms a new mercenary corps with a ton of money, supposedly under his direct control, named after him. This is, of course, PMC Wagner, the group that we're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about, and the group which, just this week, was involved in the attempted coup, or abortive coup, against Putin. Yeah, and before you ask, PMC does not stand for professional managerial class. It's a private military company. Right. And so for many, many years, Prigozhin denied any connection to Wagner. But he, didn't, he denied that Wagner even existed. <laughs> that's hilarious, yeah. Uh, but obviously that's a lie. He is not an honest fella. Uh, he has been in charge of Wagner the no. entire time. The relationship between Utkin and Prigozhin in the structure of Wagner is a bit mysterious. It seems like Utkin himself no longer has any real involvement. It's possible he never had any involvement. He was only the face of it, or perhaps only the field commander, while Prigozhin led the operations. But as early as 2014, these operations were basically going global. In 2014, just a few weeks after the Sochi Olympics, which were a huge deal for Putin and Russia, uh, the uh, the government in Kiev was overthrown, uh, and Viktor Yanukovych, who was a you know, this Russian-linked uh, president of Ukraine was overthrown and went into exile in Russia. So immediately after, Russian tanks rolled into Crimea and claimed the peninsula as Russian territory after a referendum. On the mainland, rebels who rejected the new Ukrainian government declared independence on the heavily Russian-speaking Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, and, which today are the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, people's, so-called people's republics. Right, right. And so this led directly to eight years of civil war in Ukraine, which was broken only when Putin launched his special military operation uh, last year. And that special military operation, of course, being the full-scale invasion seeking to destroy the Ukrainian state. And annex its lands. Right. But before this, the Russian military was not directly involved in the Ukrainian civil war, only in Crimea. At uh, least officially, yeah. At least, yeah, officially. Instead, many other Russian-speaking groups were. These included militias based out of Ukraine, because Ukraine has a very large population of Russian speakers, some of whom, a minority of whom, supported the independence of these republics. Also because of widespread speculation that individuals and private citizens who were not officially connected to the Russian government were entering Ukraine to foment rebellion and support the ongoing, you know, uh, civil war. This included the Wagner Group. After the initial outbreak of violence in Ukraine, uh, Utkin went back to Syria as the field commander of the Wagner forces on the ground there. And one of their main operations was the Battle of Palmyra against ISIS. Wagner actually trained a group of uh, local militias called, they called themselves the ISIS Hunters, a group whose insignia looks yeah. exactly like the skull patches of the Wagner troops, except with some Arabic writing underneath, which is really interesting. Um, in late 2016, Utkin returns to Russia for an event celebrating the success of, of the Battle of Palmyra. He was photographed meeting President Putin, but this would be his last known public appearance. Wagner would explode in success and notoriety after this indicated that Utkin may have been little more than a frontman who coordinated the group's ap- operations in Ukraine and also in Africa. Yeah. And the Middle East. Right. Because uh, the real, yeah, because the real guy behind the scenes, of course, is Prigozhin. Uh, yeah, let's talk about his activities in Africa because they're pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, just to speculate here, it's my hunch is that uh, the way kind of Wagner functions, especially now, in the now that the war in Ukraine has begun, is that their main activity in terms of numbers of troops deployed is in Ukraine, but they use these contracts in Syria and Africa to train their recruits to have 
you know, battle-hardened experience, and also generate money for the big, the, the main event, which is Ukraine. Uh, so there's been a lot of kind of relatively small-scale deployments across Africa in many different countries, usually just like... The CAR, Mali, Sudan. Yes, CAR, Mali, Sudan, just a few dozen to a few hundred. Um, Central African Republic is one of the uh, the most notorious of these. All of these are quite notorious. And Wagner, uh, they have a very complicated reputation because their pitch to these African countries is that they will basically behave better than Western mercenaries do. Because many Western mercenaries have done a lot of really terrible stuff in Africa. And the colonial And scars, Western regular militaries, Yes, too. regular militaries. The French military, for instance. And also the... Oh, good God. Yeah. The colonial scars are really, really fresh. Uh, I think in 2022, actually, as an example of this, uh, I'll try to dig it up. Wagner put out this insane cartoon commercial, specifically trying to attract uh, African investors, saying, look, in this cartoon, the, the mean Western mercenaries are going to, you know, abuse your people, whereas the better trained Russian mercenaries, we all want the same thing. We don't like the West either. So work with us. We're more sympathetic to you. And that's basically the pitch. And so... Uh, Wagner mercenaries have been sent to all these countries. Uh, in 2018, 170 of them were sent to the CAR, that being the Central African Republic, to defend their lucrative diamond and gold mines. Yes. After this success, they uh, the force grew from 170 to about maybe 300, 500. And they were involved not only in guard duty, but now in actual military operations against rebels. These military operations saw some pretty bad atrocities against suspected rebels and their collaborators. The same kind of thing you're seeing in Ukraine. In other words, civilians. Yeah, yeah. Suspected collaborators, that means civilians. Um, and survivors also allege something you, you might be familiar with if, you've, if you know Wagner. Uh, they allege that execution methods by these mercenaries included disemboweling and beheading. So really, really bad stuff here. So you can see why uh, pretty early opponents of Wagner and the Russian government more broadly sought to investigate this. In 2018, three Russian journalists traveled to the CIR to film a documentary exposing alleged war crimes by Wagner troops. They would return home in body bags. So no killer was ever named, but it's determined to be the work of well-trained professional assassins. Right. So I it, think it's pretty clear what happened here. Exactly. Uh, that was 2018. In uh, 2019, Wagner forces were implicated in violence against protesters in Sudan during the uh, very complicated overthrow of the government of Omar al-Bashir, and then the uh, installment of a military dictatorship, also with Wagner assistance. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the most notorious of all their actions, though, was in the Western Sahara region in Mali. Former because, French colony. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is because important. While, yes, because while Wagner was deployed in Mali uh, to assist against these uh, ISIS cells in West Africa, a firefight broke out between soldiers and jihadis that resulted in a brutal punitive massacre of nearby townspeople, residents of a city called Mura. They, just like the people in CAR, were accused of harboring rebels and so at least 300 civilians were gunned down in a retaliatory attack, very similar to something like My Lai you might have seen American troops doing in the Vietnam War. And you mentioned, Sam, that, uh, that uh, it's a former French colony, and that matters because locals reported that several dozen of these soldiers appeared to be Europeans who couldn't speak French. This has led to it being widely assumed that this massacre could have been perpetuated by Wagner. 
Eventually, Prigozhin would be outed as the leader of Wagner in 2022. And when this happened, he was confronted by the Russian media about these, uh, these terrible atrocities his men were carrying out. This is uh, his response. Neither I, neither I, nor the men I know, nor the Malian army have committed them. You are dying. You are dying out. Western civilization that considers Russians, Malians, Central Africans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and so many other peoples and countries to be third world scum, he said. You are a pathetic, endangered bunch of perverts, and there are many of us, billions of us, and victory will be ours. Right. And as I, I think I realize now this is the first action. Yeah, this is the first Prigozhin quote we have in this episode. He is just always saying stuff like this. Uh, I'd recommend if you want to hear third world is boss. Yeah. yeah. Third, he's not as third world as shit. No, he really is. It's hilarious. Yeah. If you want to see the kinds of like, you know, bombast he's known for Google, go on Google and look at any like try to limit your search for results from like, let's say uh, before June 2023. And you're not going to find stuff about the coup that's dominating the search results now. You're going to find all these crazy quotes like this. Because like I'm saying, he is a grandstander. He loves getting attention for himself through these kinds of bombastic statements. And just to... He called Sergei Shoigu a fuckhead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the defense minister. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole idea of like, you know, uh, placing billions of people in the developing world, positioning them against uh, like the West, that's, that's a pretty common aspect of Russian nationalism, which is uh, a bit interesting because, you know, Although Russian nationalism does appear to have a lot of overlap with American conservatism, I think the fundamental difference is that it is, is by necessity anti-American. Yeah. It sees Westerners, including the United States, as, you know, entitled, overfed, demanding too much, and taking, and while the rest of the world gets too little. And so the, the, uh, the very common rhetoric these days is that the West makes up a so-called golden billion of the, you know, wealthiest uh, top eighth of all people, whereas the other seven billion, which includes Russia, are, you know, more honest and hardworking and suffer under this plight. I, I think that this, you know... Yeah, this is sometimes labeled as a conspiracy theory, but it's, it's really more of the description of exploitation assigned certain numbers. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, it's... I completely agree. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not the worst way to describe how, you know, rich countries interact with poor countries. It's just done in a very self-serving way that supports the aggression of Russian nationalism. Yeah. I also think it's kind of interesting because this is directly at odds with, in my opinion, with the white supremacy that you'd associate with Nazis. So even though Wagner is named after a guy who is a neo-Nazi and has other oh, weird yeah. little elements of, like, you know, weird little German quirks about it, I don't think that uh, Prigozhin's ideology has really any connection to Nazism. No, uh, no. Although I, I would not, I will say though, I wouldn't be that surprised if a lot of members of Wagner, especially given how many of them are ex-cons, might be, you know, might happen to be like Nazi thugs. Oh no, yeah, we've seen it. Uh, I mean, we've uh, seen the same stuff that yeah, some yeah, of those no, Ukrainian guys yeah, have to yeah. wear. You know the. The wolf sang. Oh yeah, no, it's yeah. Sun and Rad and all yes, that. there there is a yes, yeah. There's a lot of edgy uh, Nazi <laughs> Iron Cross role playing in going on in this war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love two groups of people with Iron Crosses uh, calling each other Nazis. It's great. Yes, no, absolutely. And that's the thing is because yeah, uh, you know, Putin has claimed that the purpose of the Russian invasion is to denazify Ukraine. That's obviously bullshit. And the best yeah. evidence of how bullshit that is is the fact that. The Russian invasion relies on the support of this militia, nominally led by a neo-Nazi. 
You know, it's like you yeah. say, yeah, it's, yeah, it's. Yeah, no, there are like most Ukrainians and most Russians would find these symbols appalling. Yes, yes. Obviously. Yet, regardless, you see people on both sides using these symbols to be shocking or show how tough they are. Uh, it's, it's or very. Because they genuinely just believe that Hitler was cool. Yeah, or because they think Hitler was cool. Yeah. In any case, uh, I do not think that Russia-Ukraine is a romantic war at all, and I no. do not sympathize with people who think that either side is completely morally virtuous. I think that it's really, but I do think it's really, really bad that Russia invaded, I think. You know, oh, obviously. Putting my cards on the table, that was a brutal, unnecessary, imperialistic thing to do, and they <laughs> should not have done that. Uh, and just stupid. Yes, uh, but but we're, before we get to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which you know leads to this abortive coup, uh, let's talk about the thing that first brought Prigozhin to American attention, because I didn't realize this until I was researching this. So obviously some of our listeners, most of our listeners will remember Russiagate and the subsequent investigations. Uh, there were these 13 Russians uh, involved in troll farms promoting Trump in 2016. Yeah. Uh, they would use posters from Ghana or Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. And these were led by individuals, including uh, allegedly uh, Prigozhin. Uh, and so, you know, personally, I don't think that these specific Facebook pages had any real significant effect in turning the election towards Trump, because I think that they were mostly just copying American pages that were, you know, that were real, but yeah. they are, they're pretty funny. Uh, they were left-wing and right-wing pages, all meant to defame Hillary, whatever, the Democrats, yada, yada, promote Trump, uh, from different angles. And uh, some of these pages did have uh, some measure of success. A few of them got like 100,000 followers or more on Facebook. But I gotta say... The woke Aztec. Yeah, no, the names are ridiculous. You see, yeah, there's... The woke Aztec was the name of one of these accounts. There was one called Black Divists, another one called Woke Blacks, all obviously meant to get people of color to, you know, uh, in some way support Russian interests. Yeah, and then there was the, the right-wing ones, Back the Badge, Pray for Police... Yeah. <laughs> a lot of back right. the blue and stuff. It, yeah, yeah. Really, there are a lot of involvement in uh, gun rights stuff, you know, in like NRA stuff, uh, in pro-police stuff. I, I think really uh, you could maybe compare this to the, you know, previous Russian strategy of uh, the government strategy of supporting neo-Nazi thugs just as an excuse to cause chaos. Because I think that what was happening here is that figures like Prigozhin were uh, on behalf of the Russian government creating these troll farms just, just to spread chaos and discord in the United States in hopes that this kind of chaos and discord would be advantageous to Russia, uh, the rival of the United States. Even if it wasn't particularly successful. Right, right. Yeah. And so I said that I don't think these pages were really, really that important. I think that it's like, I'm, I, I have nothing against the Russia investigations, but I never was that convinced they would lead to the downfall of Trump the way some people thought they would. Uh, but, you know, somebody who did think that these Facebook trolls were very important is Yevgeny Prigozhin himself, who claimed, uh, who bragged, rather, that he was the reason Trump got elected and then said that he's going to keep meddling in American elections and nobody can stop him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, as much as I want is what he said. Yeah. And so when he first kind of got exposed in this Russiagate stuff, he started being referred to in the Western press as Putin's chef. Uh, because of his role in catering companies. Although this was not a nickname he liked. No, he really did not like that. Um, I have never been a chef. I used to be a restaurateur and quite successful. I can't cook for myself, though. From, but I can't cook myself. They should have just come up with the name Putin, Putin's Butcher instead. 
<laughs> yeah. God. Right. Uh, another thing he got into on this time was that uh, if you remember the name Maria Butina, who's a Russian woman who was involved in promoting right wing American politics, especially gun stuff, uh, he paid for a lot of her legal defense. So he was, yeah, very much interested in promoting Russian interests abroad in any way, whether it's by, you know, committing uh, massacres in Central Africa or by, you know, doing these cr goofy stuff in America. Uh, also around this time, though, uh, he started a, a public rivalry with another controversial Russian figure. This would be the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who was an anti-Putin figure who has also generated a lot of attention in the West. Um, but in some ways it's kind of a, like an inverse image of Prigozhin, because he is in his own way a grandstander, and he also unfortunately has weird ties to the extreme right wing. Yes, indeed. Um, so in 2019, after Prigozhin was sanctioned by the U.S., Navalny would release a statement condemning not only his ties to Putin, but also his shoddy business practices. Uh, would, and would prove that dozens of schoolchildren would acquire dysentery thanks to unsanitary school lunches provided by oh, Prigozhin's man. companies. There were even lawsuits about yeah. this, and I think the parents actually won. Yeah, yeah. Which I would kind of think is probably kind of like not, you know, I don't know too much about Russian civil society, I have to admit, but I would think that's kind of a, a big deal, right? That, like, this was such obvious, uh, you know, corruption and shoddiness that, like, uh, he was able to lose the lawsuit. The Russian court system wouldn't protect this guy, even though he was so important to the Russian government. Yeah, no, he had to compensate the victims. yeah. Which is pretty wild. It, yeah, and, and it, what, what you found out, Sam, that I had no idea about was that uh, he wasn't only skimping on the food to kids. No, he was doing the same thing to the Russian military. The Russian, uh, According to this article in Newsweek, the Russian Defense Ministry's procurement arm, uh, JSC Vontorg, filed uh, 560 lawsuits against food suppliers associated with Prigozhin, claiming more than 107 million rubles in damages. Wow. Auditors regularly find violations such as Quote, undersized quantities of food, expired products, substitutions of substituted products with substitutes of other quality, E. coli de uh, detected in food, and cooks without health certificates. Ugh. Pretty bad. Right. And again, this is what, yeah, yeah. And this is while he's making a ton of money from the Russian government. He has these huge military contracts. So it's now, again, widely assumed that he was skipping on the food because the funding he was getting was instead being used to arm and train the Wagner group. And so we eventually, you know, in 2022, uh, the Russian invasion happens. And right from the start, Wagner plays a pivotal role. I think it's important to mention uh, that uh, they had previously been active in Ukraine. So we said that right when the annexation of Crimea happened, Wagner troops were believed to be present in the Donbass region. Interestingly, it seems like uh, several commanders of the pro-Russia rebels, in fact, died mysteriously and may have been killed by Wagner. It appears that uh, these rebels, though they were pro-Russia, were deemed unreliable. So Wagner figures, including Utkin before his disappearance, were involved in getting rid of them and replacing them with new leaders more amenable to Moscow. We know all this thanks to the reporting by the Russian newspaper Gazeta. And about a year after this was reported, Gazeta was brought under government ownership in Russia. Years pass, the Russian invasion begins, Wagner plays a very pivotal role. It becomes increasingly hard for Prigozhin to pretend that he is not running this mercenary company. A major part of the Russian war effort that's gotten a lot of attention has been the recruitment of prisoners to fight in the war. People not unlike Prigozhin, you know, people who had a military uh, prison sentence, 
but might have, uh, but really want to get out, right? And uh, a, a video came out in 2022 where Prigozhin was personally speaking to these recruits in the Wagner company from prisons. And uh, that was basically when he realized he could no longer pretend to not be running this company. And he eventually admitted to having been the real leader of Wagner since 2014. Utkin was just a frontman. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and kind of an interesting kind of consequence of this is that although now, so he was announced as the leader of Wagner, and Wagner is very notorious in the West, particularly because of its, you know, Nazi associations. In Russia, though, it's seen as this patriotic organization. And this means that right until launching this abortive coup, Prigozhin had a very, and his family, had a very interesting relationship with uh, Russian high society. Because this association with Wagner yes. ma ma made him a celebrity, which I gotta think might be what he wanted all along. Uh, Absolutely. It brought wealth, brought fame for him, and even brought fame for his family. According to this, and his uh, mother. Yeah, uh, I found this report about the from the uh, Financial Times. Uh, can you read this quote here, Sam? Oh hell yes, of course. So one report on the state on the state-owned Channel One television station marveled at the woman's transportation in, transformation into an overnight art world sensation. She could not sit idle and found not just a hobby but a new calling. What casual visitors to the gallery might not know is that the artist has a famous son. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the hot dog seller turned private militia boss who has emerged as a powerful warlord in Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and who is also one of the most notorious accused war criminals on the planet. Right. Jesus so Christ. while uh, Prigozhin himself is in Ukraine, not too far from the front lines involved in the war effort, his 83-year-old mother is becoming an, a professional artist, launching an art gallery. Which I think is, is kind of sweet in a, in a twisted way. Uh, and also, kind of funny enough, apparently a lot of her art had a, an, an anti-war message, and one of her paintings was of Palmyra, the city defended by Wagner troops in Syria that had suffered extreme damage due to ISIS. Yeah, no, that was house-to-house -house fighting. Yeah. Uh, we should mention, though, that um, his mother is not the only one who's gotten her time in the spotlight. Exactly. No. Um, so, oh, no, no, yeah. So on February 20th last year, about four days before the invasion, a blonde-haired Russian teenager competed in an amateur show-jumping event in the Mediterranean resort of uh, Oliva, near Valencia in Spain. This girl was Veronica Pregojina, the young, younger of Pregojina's two daughters. She wrote a gray gelding called Dithara and finished fourth, netting prize money of 50 euros. Yeah, so, you know, Pregojina, he could never become an Olympic, you know, skier, but maybe his daughter can be an Olympic snow, uh, show jumper someday. Yeah, and then records uh, compiled by the uh, International Freedom of Equestrian Sports... Jesus Christ. The equestrian governing body showed how, from 2014, Veronica and Polina, his uh, elder daughter, competed outside Russia in hundreds of events uh, uh, on a stable, horses with, uh, a stable of horses with names including Happy Feet, Br uh, Brunetti, and Zitana, in competitions in Germany, France, Portugal, Italy, Belgium, and also in Spain. Yeah. His oldest son, though, is Pavel, who actually joined Wagner as a soldier in Syria. He won the Eunice Black Cross Award, which is, as you might guess, probably a reference to the German Iron Cross. Yeah, Cross. yeah. Uh, so that's, so that's good. what's going on with his family. Pretty ugly yeah, stuff. Yeah. Prigozhin himself, though, has not had as uh, fun of a past few months as his family have had. because uh, like, No, yeah. and neither has Wagner. No, no. Because as he constantly complains, his men are being thrown in the meat grinder. Yeah. Because, I mean... What do you think is going to happen when you sign up a bunch of ex-cons in Russia? Right. Uh, They're yeah. going to be cannon fodder. Right. There's actually some dispute about whether or not the ex-cons have yet served in Ukraine. Some people think they've only been fighting yeah. in Africa. But I got to think that these That's guys true. are... I, I, think that, I think these guys are fighting in Ukraine. Yeah, no, I don't see how they, how they 
have as enough men without resorting to right. that. Because the war Especially has... Especially in yeah. Bakhmut, which was such a huge and right. really right. ugly battle. And let's get into why this the Russian war effort has been so ugly. Because, look, it, it, it is not going well for, for Russia. Uh, I don't think... No, it, this was supposed to be over in weeks and Right, most. right, yeah. And so the Russian government has been very Baghdad Bob about that. You know, they, they downplayed their embarrassing defeat trying to take Kiev. Uh, and they also downplayed the fact that... Uh, this tiny city of Bakhmut, uh, which is not even that, you know, which is, you don't think would be that important to the war effort, ended up being a bloody conflict that lasted longer than the entire Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. Yeah. But while, you know, the Russian government, the Ministry of Defense, is being very uh, elusive about these losses, Prigozhin is the opposite. No, if anything, he, he's trying to get everyone who will ever listen to him to hear his tirades. Yeah. He's, to- he's a total right. catastrophist he's a, he's a, about this. The war is going terribly. Exactly. Wagner is the only competent force. The Ministry of Defense is, uh, you know, always to blame. Uh, Shoigu isn't sending in us bullets, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yes. We'll talk about Shoigu in a minute, uh, his rival. But uh, yeah, he uh, he's a front video. He's a front camera video guy. Yes, yes. He's a he's a boomer. He's you know taking videos in his car instead of complaining about like you know Target T-shirts being too woke. He is talking about how you know the Russian military isn't actually committed to the war effort uh and so in and uh yeah so he said things like uh, he claims that uh the ukrainian government is committing an ongoing genocide of ethnic russians in ukraine but the uh the, the government is too busy you know with their own interests to to get involved there in october 2022 he said that uh the leaders of the russian army as opposed to wagner the private army uh all these bastards ought to be sent out to the front barefoot with only a submachine gun and then saying that uh, the Russian parliament was totally useless for not giving Putin enough power to, you know, effectively prosecute this war. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the interesting thing here is that uh, he uh, is really one of the only, you could argue in a sense that uh, he's one of the only figures who has publicly criticized Putin and the Russian government and until very recently basically got away with it, you know, because this is a state that does not tolerate that much significant criticism but their most important commander is out here just constantly talking shit about his rivals. Um, and I think it's because of that, uh, Prigozhin really thought that he was essential. He thought that uh, because he was so important to the war effort, he could say or even do whatever he wanted. And that led to the crazy situation that we've been seeing this week. But before we get into that crazy situation, Sam, let's uh, read off some of the quotes that he said over the past year about the state of the war in Ukraine. We are now in a state where we could just screw Russia up. So we have to introduce martial law. We have to announce new waves of mobilization. We have to get everyone we can producing ammunition. Yeah, so he's basically saying that the world should be like, you know, World War II, essentially, a full mobilization, which we haven't seen. Yeah. He says that we have to uh, stop wasting money, stop building new roads and new infrastructure, and work only for the war. Yeah, yeah. I think that his funniest comment was, uh, was when he explained kind of what he thought the course of Russian society should take. Russia needs to live like North Korea for a certain number of years. Close all the borders, stop playing nice, bring all our kids back from abroad, and work our asses off. Then we'll see some results. Right. Uh, he often directly addresses the people he's complaining about, uh, including on rare occasions Putin, and especially Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, who leads the Russian army. And remember, so the army and Wagner group are separate, and Wagner has generally been a lot more effective than the army, especially in conflicts like the Battle of Bakhmut. 
He, however, gu uh, often guards his fiercest criticism by addressing Russia's happy grandfather, who has Which been Putin. sometimes been speculated to be Putin, but I think is most likely Shoigu. Uh, here's an example of one of his most colorful quotes about the happy grandfather. And the happy grandfather thinks that he is good. If he turns out to be right, then may God grant everyone health. But what will the country do? Our children and grandchildren and who are the future of Russia. And how can we win this war if by chance, and I'm just speculating here, it turns out that this grandfather is a complete fuckhead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this kind of thing is pretty crazy like, stuff. Yeah. Especially, you know, given the, the track record of, you know, Russian dissidents basically, you know, getting pushed out of a window or whatever. Uh, but he totally feels free to make these statements. Uh, you kind of got to admire the gumption. And uh, so I think, you know, as we kind of wrap this up, let's, uh, going up to the present here, let's explain uh, what exactly led to the violent events of the last few days that really all have to do with that rivalry with Shoigu, the head of the Ministry of Defense. Uh, and it says, so Shoigu, so he is in many ways the total opposite of Prigozhin. Prigozhin is the carnival barker, and then Shoigu is the quiet kid in the corner of the classroom, you know slowly drawing pictures on his on his desk or perhaps you know carving a piece of wood exactly um and also shoigu is it should be noted also an ethnic minority uh but a very a much uh uh one from much farther afield he's tuvan yeah yeah you know the, the the throat singing guys uh from the russian far east you know in siberia yeah so that's his background which is kind of cool uh uh, and he's been attacked uh, on the, ba the base of ethnicity by many members of the Wagner group, including uh, Prigozhin, who recently condemned him as a Tuvan degenerate. Good God. Not a lot is... Yeah, no, it's awful. Not, not a lot is known about Shoigu, except that he has been often named as a potential successor for Putin. He is no spring chicken, so I wouldn't be that... Uh, I wouldn't you know, be expected that much. Uh, but one thing that's kind of funny about Shoigu that I just want to mention is that he has a lifelong hobby of collecting pieces of wood and carving wood. And there are all these uh, photos of him. Uh, there's photos of him finding pieces of wood off the ground, uh, showing Putin his favorite pieces of wood that he's collected over the years. <laughs> and then I want to say in 2018, just like Prigozhin's mother, Shoigu got his own art gallery where... Yes, he did. Yeah, where he showed off his favorite logs he'd collected across the forests of Russia and brought in all these logs to display as pieces of art. Man just really likes wood. I respect it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, but the two totally despise each other. Uh, Prigozhin blames all of Russia's failures in the war on Shoigu, and there have been a lot of failures. I think everyone expected the Ukrainian military to basically collapse with contact with the Russian army, and this uh, didn't happen. No. Uh, the early weeks of the war went very badly for Ukraine, but after the defeat outside Kiev, there was a successful counterattack where they pushed back the Russian forces, including Wagner, basically just to the eastern side of the country. And uh, it's basically honestly been a stalemate ever since for the past year. Yeah. Uh, there have been many... Uh, many people in Russia did not expect this to happen, and fingers... Uh, a lot of finger-pointing happened in different directions. Obviously, Prigozhin says that Shoigu is simply too incompetent. It's all his fault. But that isn't necessarily the opinion of the Kremlin, particularly of Putin. Because recently, the Russian government proposed a new policy which would totally change the organizational makeup of their war effort, presumably in an attempt to you know, streamline things and help win their war. But instead, this would be a point of no return 
for Prigozhin and directly incite his rebellion. This was that it was declared that uh, members of the Wagner group would actually have to sign contracts directly with the Minister of Defense, suggesting that they would no longer be a private mercenary company, but instead be integrated into the Russian army. This would presumably strip Prigozhin of all of his power and all of his great influence, make him no longer so essential to the war effort, and possibly most painfully of all, mean that all of his troops would now have to answer to the hated Shoigu. And this was the last straw. Shortly after this statement was made, Prigozhin claimed, without any real evidence as far as I can tell, that the Russian army had been shelling or conducting airstrikes against Wagner units across Ukraine. And so he declared that, therefore, he was going to take his army to Moscow, cross the Rubicon like Julius Caesar, and replace Sergei Shoigu with a better minister of defense. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he had that concrete of a plan on how to do this exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Um, and it, it, the results kind of bear it out. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but that's what he said. That's what we can gleam in what he said. Right. Yeah, so a couple days ago when this all happened, uh, it was really hard to know to what extent this was real. At first, some people thought this was, you know, was false reports. Uh, it's even, even still, it's hard to know to what extent, uh, how many troops participated uh, but it seems like the city of Rostov, which is, you know, not, which is about, uh, not far from the Ukrainian border. You yeah, know, that, that was legit. Yeah, yeah. Several buildings uh, were occupied by troops, presumably Minister of Defense employees and Russian army soldiers were taken hostage. And for a minute, it really seemed like a real violent revolt was taking place. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly was. And they were, mar the column was marching up the road to Moscow. Straight to Moscow. You know, it's, it's crazy. Again, it's like Julius Caesar stuff. It's, it's the yeah. kind of thing that doesn't happen in a modern war. Yeah, this war, is what, the warlord you know, sacking the provinces and marching to the capital. Yes, this is like, it's medieval stuff. This is like the Thirty Years' War. It's uh, the 14th century Italian wars. It's, you know, John Hawkwood, mercenary captains like that. Condottieri, it's really weird stuff. Uh, we don't know to what extent any actual clashes happened between the Russian army and Wagner. It's been described as a bloodless coup, although I'm not entirely sure that was true. There were some reports of gunfire, as well as the claim that a Wagner helicopter shot down a Russian military helicopter. Yeah. This is all still, you know, the dust is still settling here. But what we know for sure is that when the army was not that far from Moscow, Wagner suddenly announced that they were going to turn back, that they would not take the city as planned. Uh, there were reports that he was about to remove Putin from power and install a new president, possibly himself, you know? It would have been cool to have two Jewish presidents fighting each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, because Zelensky is Jewish as well. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be funny, yeah. Uh, but it didn't happen. Although, obviously, it would have been terrible. Like, what's uh, that? There were some Westerners who were, you know, Michael McFall and all those other people who were talking about this as an opportunity and uh, this could be a new future for Russia, but it's uh, this would be terrible. This would be even yeah. worse than... Oh, no, yes, like, yes, yeah. Right, yeah, no, he's a, Prigozhin is a very bad guy. You don't want him in charge of a country of 100 million no. people. And, you know, a full-on civil war would have been very bloody, a lot of people died, and there was there even would be a chance of nuclear escalation, you know? One of the only good things that uh, Prigozhin has ever said or done is that he condemned Putin's nuclear bluster earlier this year over Ukraine. But, uh, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe Putin would use nukes against him, you know, right? It's scary to think about. Who knows? It's, you know, uh... 
look at how bad the warlord era was in China in the 1930s. We don't want to see this happen to Russia, you know? Russia could be a lot better than it is right now, but I don't think complete collapse into civil war in which various, you know, venal or even genocidal, you know, factions are waging war against each other. I don't think that's a situation you want. But it doesn't seem like that's a situation that we're going to get because it appears that a deal was reached between Putin and Prigozhin. Via one of my favorite characters of modern European politics, Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah, so tell us about Lukashenko, Sam. So Lukashenko is a weird dude. He's a former, uh, he's a former kolkhoznik turned like anti-corruption uh, crusader guy in the '90s turned dictator. He's ruled Belarus uh, mm-hmm. in a very weird, in a very odd direction. He's yeah. He brought back Soviet symbolism. Uh, for example, the, the flag was changed, uh, and the state security agents w- uh, was renamed to the KGB. Mm-hmm. It's still called the KGB, which is wild. It's so he brought funny, back yeah. state ownership. Yeah, he brought back state ownership of a lot of companies, but with an explicit rejection of Soviet social progressivism and equality. Yeah. It is a right-wing boomer's uh, version of Soviet. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's fair. Uh, you know, and the fact that he's a boomer... He, he might, you might have heard of him for being the guy who famously said that it was better to be a dictator than to be gay. Yeah, yeah. He also said something about how uh, he decided actually that he's fine with lesbians. He only hates gay men. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned he's a boomer because I think it's very important that he was born in the 50s because he had previously claimed that his father died in World War II. Yes. So you got to wonder how that works out. Yeah, yeah. If you're born in like 1950, but you're, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Lukashenko, he's a weird guy. Uh, he uh, has been playing a kind of odd, a peripheral, but not unimportant role in world politics since the 90s. Yeah, Russian, the Russian army, uh, part of their invasion was through Belarusian territory, which uh, Lukashenko okayed. Although he did not send Belarusian troops proper into the the war, he declined, and I'm sure he was pressured immensely to have his army, the, the their army, join the war. But that did not happen. He it would be a re- he recognized it would be a stupid move. Yeah, and so he's a very close relationship with Putin, but uh, he's kind of backed off at a few moments. I know, I feel like didn't it, five or six years ago there was talk of. Uh, some kind of Eurasian Union being set up by Putin to counter the influence of NATO in the EU. And uh, it seems like for a moment, uh, but he would be on board with that, you know, joining some kind of new post-Soviet confederation that stands for nothing except nationalism and profit. But that didn't happen. Uh, he never, that net union did not materialize. And I think that Lukashenko's resistance is a big part of that. Yeah, he very much, he's tried to balance the EU and Moscow in a really weird, interesting way. He would have, he had like a trade war with uh, Russia for a while. Right. There was a lot of really, really weird uh, disputes between Russia and uh, and Belarus. Mm-hmm. But in the end, Russia was much more willing to put up with his shit than the right. Europeans were. And, and Right, and that's probably why, you know, uh, he's returned the favor by negotiating this peace settlement that presumably avoided a civil war. Because now it has been announced that Wagner troops are going to return to the front to continue their fight against Ukraine. And Prigozhin himself, however, will be exiled to Belarus. And that, as, uh, as late as we're recording this on June 25th, is where the story ends. We don't know what is next for Prigozhin. And like we said, we're not going to speculate. We're not going to make predictions. But uh, what we can say is that I don't think the emergence of this mutiny is a good sign for Russia or for... No. I think it suggests a fundamental weakness about the Russian state. 
it makes me think that the entire war effort is held together by duct tape. I don't think the war is going well for Ukraine either, but I think this is two countries uh, who are no. overly reliant on ultimately unreliable militias. And it's a, uh, it's a, it seems like a bad move. And I got to think that uh, if Putin was as smart as he wants us to think he is, he would have seen this coming. Absolutely. He wouldn't have allowed so much power to be wrested in the hands of essentially a warlord. Uh, this really unique postmodern figure. Uh, and I got to say, uh, he's a terrible guy, but he's one of the funniest, most entertaining figures of the last few years to emerge, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I think that some people think that the Russian equivalent to Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin. That is absolutely not correct. The Russian version of Trump is this guy. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. He represents everything that's terrible about the modern world, right? Uh, like publicity as politics. And about the modern Russian economy specifically. Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a classic oligarch who uses his money, you know, to get into the most brutal business you can imagine. Uh, defending other venal dictatorships. Uh, attacking, you know, uh, just trying to destroy an entire nation. Just, uh, you know, to satiate the nationalist whims of Russian boomers uh, in a pointless war where many people are dying. It, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a uniquely 21st century kind of dirtbag. And that's why I think he's a fun guy to talk about. I really like the description, uh, end of history on horseback. That, yeah, that, that, that's it right there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, any closing thoughts on Prigozhin, Sam? Uh, I would say to probably relocate somewhere a little farther from home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe try Uruguay. I don't know. I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, God, no. If I, if I was Prigozhin, I would just take all my money I could, that I could, move to Miami, a lot of Russian speakers there, and try something new. Maybe start a new restaurant, you know? Yeah. Maybe, you know, uh, get, uh, you know, uh, grow some new facial hair. Try to look different. Try to stay away from open windows. That kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been Gladiator for Europe. This has been a very special episode. I got, I have to think, uh, recounting our probably the most recent history we've ever discussed. Um, but uh, it's a fun topic. And I know that a lot of people wanted to know more about who Prigozhin is. So I hope that we've done a good job explaining why he is such a fun figure. I, I think so, too. I will probably be seeing more from this wonderful, wonderful chef. <laughs> Again, I won't be making any, any predictions. This is a no predictions episode, but I would not be surprised if uh, he has a significant role to play in coming years. All right. Uh, or he will be pushed out of window. We'll find out. All right. We'll see you guys all soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.